encourage you to come out in a couple of weeks. We have a fellowship night. We can do this for hours. One more quick announcement I forgot to make. We have the ministry here called our Go Team, and we go out the first Friday of every month downtown. We stand on the corner there, the south uh, west corner, the southwest corner of the square, and we just share our faith one-on-one with the folks that walk by. It's Art Walk, usually that Friday night. And so if you want to get involved with that, just see Greg right there, Greg Cones, and he'll uh, get you plugged in with that. Or just show up at 7.30 down there, and uh, and you can watch just what we do, and, and it's a real blessing. And if you can't make it, be praying for that, because it's a ministry that we've done for quite a while, and we've watched lives get saved and changed because of it, and so continue to pray for that ministry. Well, this morning we're in chapter 19 of Revelation. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and these guys will bring one Right to your seat as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We're looking at the first six verses this morning. Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle John writes... Starting in verse 1. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The title of my message this morning is, Hallelujah, 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 Praise Ye the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Opportunity to be in your word, to know, Holy Spirit, that you are here to teach us and instruct us in all things. Lord, we pray that we would have open hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord, not that we would only just gain information, but application in our lives as well that would change us, that would draw us closer to you in our relationship with you. Father, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you today. They're not born again this morning. Would you especially touch their heart, Lord? Help them to see their need for you, their need for repentance, and to come to you in faith today. Thank you for our time together. We committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In high school, many, many years ago, one of the songs that we would sing uh, in choir, I was in choir, was the Hallelujah Chorus by Handel. And, you know, you'd go in there and you'd have the performance on the stage and everybody would stand up and you'd sing the Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And it goes, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. And it goes, you know, never and ever and ever. I sang it, didn't understand it, made no clue to me until I became a Christian. And then I read Revelation 19. Whoa, that's where this song comes from, right here. That's what this song means. Four times in these 
six verses that we just read, suddenly, spontaneously, praise breaks out to God. Alleluia's break forth. Why? Because chapter 19 is the crescendo. It's the the climax. It's, It's the big finish. Jesus Christ returns to judge unrighteousness and destroy the armies and the nations of this world. When that happens, rejoicing happens in heaven. And that's what these first we have in these first six verses. Four alleluias. And that's our four points this morning. If you're a note taker, we're going to t- look at each one of these alleluias individual, individually. Now, hallelujah with an H is the Hebrew pronunciation of the word. Alleluia is the English translation. We say it both ways. Uh, you, know, you hear it both ways. But in every language, hallelujah or alleluia means the same thing. It's Dictionary definition means praise or, or thanks to God. Broken down, it's Hallel and Yah. Hallel meaning praise. Yah is short for Yahweh. So it's praise and thank Yahweh. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise you the Lord. Which knowing this makes this more interesting because it is much more than a declaration. It's a directive. In the same way I might... Uh, define and describe the word go. It would be best defined if I were actually moving. This is what it means to go. You know, our our go team, we're we're going forth. Well, hallelujah is the same way. If I'm declaring hallelujah, it's because God has done something worthy of praise. God has done something worthy of thanks. Now, you might be interested to know that the word hallelujah is in 24 times in the Hebrew Bible, mostly in the Psalms. It's a common exclamation of praise, but the word appears only four times in the New Testament, and it's all right here. It's as if God is, cha- is saving these last four hallelujahs for this very moment. Because as we finished looking at chapter 17 and 18, we saw the kingdom of the Antichrist. We saw the kingdom of the beast had destroyed peace and prosperity on the earth. Almost everything on the earth now is is left in shambles. Great darkness covers the earth. God's followers have been hunted down and slaughtered like never before in the history of the earth. The few Christians that remain can't buy or sell openly and are forced to live off the black market and remain in hiding somewhere. All appears to be lost. And just when it's certain there's no hope, The righteous king of the universe breaks through the clouds and reverses everything the Antichrist and a beast has inflicted upon the earth. Listen, in the same way, folks, when life seems darkest, God can break through our clouds and show us that everything is and has always been in his powerful and loving hand. He is in control. Listen, there is never, never a reason for a Christian to be in despair. Why? Because, verse 6, our Lord God omnipotent reigns. Omnipotent, all-powerful, almighty. He will reign forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Like the end of a great play or a good book, as the audience erupts in applause and celebration, so too, Revelation 19, the audience in heaven is breaking out in celebration. Look at verse 1 now. We start off with, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. After what things? Well, the things of chapters 17 and 18, the the destruction of Babylon. We are now at the end of the Great Tribulation period. Now, here's something 
interesting that I found, and we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks, about the religious Babylon in the last days that's going to be destroyed. And we looked at after the church is raptured out of here, all that will be left is a shell of a church, an ecumenical coexist, return to Babylon type of a church. We looked at how it's directly related to Rome and how even some of the Roman Catholic Church practices today can be traced back to ancient Babylon and the practices that they had in the worship of the false gods. Then in chapter 18, we looked at the fall of the economic Babylon in just one hour and how the people wept because of the life, not because of the lives that were lost, but because their economy, their buying and selling had collapsed. We speculated that the city of Babylon could be a few things. It could be just an economic system. It could be uh, uh, Rome itself, or it could be a newly rebuilt actual city of Babylon there in Iraq. Well, come Tuesday morning, this is Tuesday after last Sunday, I'm reading an article by Joel Rosenberg, to those who are familiar with him, and he came up with this picture on, on his article. This is what was showed up there. Same Ishtar gate that I shared last week talking about Babylon and the rebuilt Babylon. And here was the headline, Babylon rising, war-torn Iraq is rebuilding, and Pope Francis is heading there to see it for himself to encourage the Christian community. Joe Rosenberg mentions in a bid to draw tourists and tourist dollars to Iraq, officials in Baghdad are preparing to roll out the red carpet for Pope Francis in March. The Pope will arrive in Iraq on March 5th and spend four days traveling to multiple cities. I thought, now that is really interesting. Then I went on to read in this article, it says, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church is intrigued to see both the ancient history of the country that plays such a large role in the Bible, as well as the growth and construction underway today. Pope Francis is due to hold an inter-religious prayer service at the ancient Mesopotamian site of her when he visits Iraq next week. An event local archaeologists hope will draw renewed attention to the place revered as a birthplace of Abraham. We are just talking about all of these things. We just looked at these things. We thought how this could all fall into place. Man, the pieces of the puzzle of the last days are all seem to be fitting, all falling into place. As we come to chapter 19, it gives us kind of a timeline, an order of events that bridges the gap between the seven-year Great Tribulation period and the millennial reign of Christ when Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. We know already that God has given us the divine outline of the book of Revelation back in chapter 1. Verse 19, when John was instructed to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The things which you've seen, the, the, the vision of Christ in chapter 1. The things which are, the seven churches of the church age in chapters 2 and 3. The things that will take place after this, chapters 4 through chapter 22, the seven-year great tribulation period, the millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment, and then finally a new heaven and a new earth. Now that seems pretty straightforward to us, but what we find today, and maybe you've already noticed this, there is such an anti-Christian sentiment growing towards those who believe in a biblical last days, book of Revelation scenario prior to Christ's return. For years, the Roman Catholic Church has rejected the literal fulfillment of the book of Revelation. In fact, according to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, quote, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature filled with symbolism, 
much of which cannot be taken as literal and instead provides readers with spiritual themes of the truths of Christ's authority and ultimate power over evil. Well, if I've read Revelation, as we've studied Revelation, yes, there is some symbolism here, but the majority of that for which we can and, and, and look at it, must take, we must take it literal. There's another interesting view on end times, and it's become popular today as well. It's something called dominion theology. Dominion theology teaches that God desires, desires for Christians to rise to power through civil systems. That his word might go forth and then govern the nation, which is absolutely fine. And I pray for more people like Angela stepping up and seeking to get involved in government. And we should as believers. But the problem that comes with this view is that either they take it a step further to say that once enough Christians get involved in government, once we establish righteousness and justice and legislation on this earth, then and only then can Jesus return. In other words, things are going to get better and better and better than Jesus can come back. And an offshoot of that same dominion theology is what's called kingdom now and reconstructionism. Both with the same idea that Christians uh, can infiltrate the whole world, the world will get better and better so that Jesus can finally come back. Proponents of this kingdom now teaching also do not believe in the rapture of the church. They explain it away as a a feeling, the rapture is a feeling of excitement uh, that the Lord's returning in the end uh, to receive the kingdom from our hands. In other words, everyone's going to be caught up emotionally when he returns. Another uh, unbiblical belief is the idea that all the prophecies regarding the future of Israel, both in the Old and New Testaments, actually apply to the church. Many leaders in these movements teach that all the negative prophetic judgment passages in the Bible were fulfilled around 70 A.D., I have a big problem with that. Why? Because the book of Revelation was written in 90 A.D. I mean, how how does that happen? So my Bible tells me that these judgments that we've been reading about, they're still yet for the future. And the fact that we have been studying the book of Revelation, we have seen, we have read how one-third of the trees, the green grass, human life is going to be destroyed instantaneously, We've read of mountains being thrown into the sea and a third of the part of the sea becoming blood. We've read of the rebuilt Babylon being destroyed in one hour and the kings of the earth standing at a distance in fear of the torment. So when someone teaches or implies that the church will make this world a paradise and only after that happens, Jesus will return. I say, what Bible are you reading from? Folks, this is why there's such a great need for us to be like the Bereans who studied God's Word to see if these things were true. Sadly, there's just too much of the world mixed in with the church nowadays. The world says, well, there's an alternative to salvation. You know, you know what they call it? They call it optimism. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow, tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar, you know. Years ago, we are the world, we are the children, we're going to make the world a better place. And then there's those in the church that are saying, we'll make the world this paradise once again. Then Jesus can return. Understand, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to make this world a better place. Nor am I saying just give up because it's so horrible. <laughs> not at all. We're called to take care of this earth and to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We're called to make a difference in this world. 
But if we think for one moment that the same mankind that created the weaponry that has the ability to wipe us off the face of this earth six times over can usher in world peace, paradise, we're sadly mistaken. Man will not bring about paradise on earth. It's, it, it, it's not going to bring heaven to earth. In fact, for all practical purposes, men will continue to bring hell upon the earth because the problem is in each side of each one of us. It's the human heart. The Bible says in Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I like the words of General Omar Bradley. He gave this speech on Armistice Day, 1948. It almost has a, a prophetic ring to it. He said this, We have grasped the mystery of the Adam, and we have rejected the Sermon on the Mount. The world has achieved brilliance without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. How true that is. Because according to the Bible, mankind will bring about war on a scale that it has never known. And here in Revelation chapter 19, among other things at the end of this chapter, is the description of the war to end all wars. It's the battle of Armageddon. It's going to take place there in the Valley of Megiddo, there in the Middle East. Now, this war is going to be interrupted by the bodily return of Jesus Christ to the planet Earth to claim his title deed and establish his kingdom. Yet, the events that are leading up to this joyful event of the return of Christ, they're really, and they have been, tragic to look at. That's why it's fittingly called the Great Tribulation Period. Because it is the hardest and the most devastating of times for the planet. These are the days in which Jesus spoke of if he didn't return to end this time, there wouldn't be anyone left alive. But though the destruction, uh, uh, the tribulation will be dark and destructive, God will still shine his light because after the rapture of the church, many people, they're going to believe. They're going to come to faith in Christ. People that you've shared the gospel with, members of your family, co-workers, students at your schools, neighbors that you've shared with and told them about your relationship with Christ that, that basically thought you were nuts. They've written you off as a lunatic. They laugh at you behind your back, but they won't be laughing after that rapture takes place. A lot of them will be repenting and getting their lives right with God. So that seed that you've sown that may not have broken ground today or tomorrow, after the Lord comes for us, it will. So during the Great Tribulation period, many people are going to come to faith in Christ. In fact, in fact it appears that the most people in history are going to come to faith in Christ during this time. I mean, first of all, I mean, you'll be those that will come to faith after the rapture that will go out and just share their faith. Then the Bible speaks of an angel that will fly around the globe covering the four corners of the earth, proclaiming the everlasting gospel to every nation and every language. You can describe that as an angelic mop-up operation. So all of those places that the gospel had never gone, where the missionaries have never penetrated, this angel is going to cover. This will fulfill Jesus' statement when he said in Matthew 24, 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. During the Great Tribulation, we also know that God's going to bring about a great revival with the Jewish people. 144,000 of them from the 12 tribes of Israel are going to come to faith and believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And they're going to span the globe preaching the gospel and God will supernaturally protect them and they'll not be killed until they finish their task. 
On top of that, as we've looked at, God is going to rise up two prophets, the Bible says. They're going to preach the gospel. And it's believed by many that these prophets will be Moses and Elijah. And they'll be able to call fire down from heaven. Could you imagine how convincing it would be if you were witnessing to someone and you said, Hey, you want to see a miracle? <laughs> when fire comes down. I mean, it'd be a good, good idea to be friends with them. You know, maybe they could put that power to some good use and cook you a steak, right? You know? How do you want your steak? <laughs> you say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's how it knows. My point is, there's going to be reminder after reminder, miracle after miracle, bringing the message of the gospel to the people, and the result will be a multitude so large that no one can number coming to faith in Jesus Christ during the Great Tribulation period. Yet amazingly, even in the midst of all of this, people will still not believe. Even as all hell is breaking out on planet Earth, they're not going to believe. Even as the judgment of God is coming down on them, they will refuse to believe. Why? Here's the answer. John 3.19. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Because of that, there will come a day when God will say enough is enough. Final judgment must come. And that brings us to our first Alleluia. Verses 1 and 2, look at the first, first, first one, point number one, the first hallelujah. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. So I'm declaring praise because God has done something worthy of declaring praise for. The first hallelujah comes because salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Jesus is returning, and he's the only one that can put an end to this great tribulation. He's the only one that can bring salvation. Salvation is only found in him and him alone. That's why they're saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 4, 12, there's salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So this first hallelujah is because those in heaven know that they have been saved through Jesus Christ and that now salvation is no longer available to those left upon the earth. The only thing left on earth is judgment. And that's why verse 2 is tied into the first hallelujah. Verse 2 says, For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. We looked at this great harlot uh, two weeks ago. This, this first hallelujah uh, breaks out in praise because finally at the end of the, age, of the age, all the things that were unrighteous are going to be made righteous. All the things that were false, the false church, the false prophet, all the deceptions are now made clear. Judgment has come. You know, godly people love righteousness and hate sin. For righteousness honors God and sin mocks God. Believers long for a world of justice and it will come. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Have you ever watched a movie and about a third of the way through the movie, it looks as if the bad guy is going to win. And there's this distress and there's this disappointment and, 
and you don't want to you see, you know, uh, you know, uh, join us next time. You know, no, we, we, you, you don't want to see that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The good guy is supposed to win. The good guy is supposed to get the victory. In the end, it's a guy with a white hat coming in. And is, you know, what's wrong? But in walks Chuck Norris. You know, here he comes, you know, or, or Iron Man or Superman, whoever your hero is, to save the day. And from that moment on, when that hero starts to destroy that villain to fight against him, suddenly you want to stand up and you want to shout, Get him! Beat him up! Punch his lights out! Destroy him! And suddenly, it's as if we've forgotten every Christian principle ever learned in our lives. <laughs> but that's not really what's happening. Actually, our hearts at that point are very much like the heart of God. Because righteousness is coming against unrighteousness. Righteousness is anti-wickedness. Now it's what we've been called to do until Jesus Christ returns. To stand up for righteousness. But in that final day, Jesus will deal with all the unrighteousness once and for all. But until then, every day, we need to stand up against unrighteousness. Like this so-called equality bill. Maybe you've heard about this. It was passed through the House. It's on its way to the Senate. I urge you, I implore you to write your senator and let them know uh, not to, that you are against this. And you can go online and you can get it there. It's up there on the screen. But the name equality bill, it might sound well and good, but it's deceiving. Nothing to do with equality. It's just a smokescreen to force Americans to accept and promote the LGBTQ agenda. If passed into law, this Equality Act could prohibit religious organizations and churches from hiring only like-minded people who believe what they believe. Listen, for the last 2,000 plus years, like a movie, we've seen the villain winning over and over and over again. We've seen the evil in this world, and we see, see and we hear the horribleness, and we scratch our heads and we wonder, where is our hero? God, why don't you do something about all this evil that's going on in our world right now? But you see, we learn that God is patient. We learn that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why? Because God loves everyone. God loves everyone, everybody. God so loved the world. That's you, that's me, anyone from the most moral to the most wicked. God loves them. But when repentance does not come, and when sin and hatred for God and man continues to go on and on, God has no choice but to judge. And these judgments come down here in chapters 18 and 19. There's going to be no more chances to repent. Once it starts, I don't care how sincere how sorrowful you are at this point because this is the end of the end of the end. And for that reason, that's why you can see the crying out of the words, Alleluia. Because what is left behind on earth here at this point are all those people who have had the opportunities to come to faith in Christ. They've had centuries to say yes to God and His plan of salvation, but instead they said no to God. They want to have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And they've continued in their wickedness from year after year. So this is a righteous ending for them, but it is judgment, and it's terrible, and it is quite sad. But it's something from a heavenly perspective they're praising God and they're thanking Him for. Why? Because salvation again and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. God brings holiness to this earth. He's bringing truth. He's bringing righteousness. 
You know, praise and, and punishment often go together in Scripture. Psalm 104, verse 35. Let all sinners vanish from the face of the earth. Let the wicked disappear forever. Let all that I am praise the Lord, praise the Lord. How about Proverbs 29:16? When the wicked are in authority, sin flourishes, but the godly will live to see their downfall. Believers, we believers long for a world of justice, and it will come. We do say, Lord, get him. And as verse 2 said, He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Those that were persecuted, those that were beaten, those that were martyred for their faith during the tribulation period, God is taking vengeance on. You know, we as believers, we are forbidden in Scripture to take vengeance on people. Now, that doesn't mean that some of us don't try every now and then, but the moment we do, we're no longer walking in faith. Romans twelve nineteen, Paul tells us, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. God will take care of the vengeance for you. I think, you know, many of us in this life, you know, we've experienced abuse verbally or maybe even physically. And our first response usually is, oh, yeah, well, we, we want to get even. That's just natural. That's just our old nature speaking out. But we need to learn to let God handle it. Let God handle the vengeance department. Vengeance is his. He will bring about judgment. Now, this brings us to our second hallelujah. Verse 3, we read, and again they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, the second hallelujah comes because God's judgment is absolutely perfect. Remember back in chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, the warning came out. It says there, uh, a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, they receive his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. The, ju- the, 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 the warning went out. If you do this, this will happen. Judgment is going to come, as we looked at. It will be for eternal for all those that have rejected Jesus Christ. Now, I am sure for you, as it is for me, each time I witness somebody being judged, someone being condemned, somebody in the position that they've done something terribly wrong, and now they're reaping the repercussions of that, I find myself still in that position of judge saying, uh, Lord, get them. Put them away. Lock them up for good. They need to spend the rest of their lives in prison. You know, again, back to the movies. When that bad guy who was, you know, against the good guy for most of the movie, finally at the end of the movie, the bad guy falls off a cliff and dies. You go, no, that's not the way the movie should end. Everybody needs to hurt him back for all the people that he's hurt. There should be a line of just smacking him in the face, you know, one at a time until, you know, they get even with him. Kind of a curtain call ending, you know. Or maybe your judgment goes the other way. Maybe you feel kind of sympathetic for the guy. Oh, you know, I wish he wouldn't have fallen off a cliff. He shouldn't have died. I mean, even after somebody's judged, you're not too sure how you feel about the judgment. But that's not the case with the second hallelujah. That's not the case with the Lord. Because as they're looking on and they're seeing the judgment against economic and religious Babylon, the smoke continues to pour, they're saying, hallelujah. Not because judgment is going down, 
but the kind of judgment that's coming down. It's absolutely perfect. You know, one of the first and, and one of the greatest things that we realize after we come to faith in Christ is that we will no longer face judgment. Sure, our works are going to be judged for our rewards, but facing judgment that leads to condemnation and an eternity in hell where the smoke rises forever and ever is no longer a possibility in our lives. And we realize that Scripture says there's no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus. But then we find ourselves with this truth in Jesus Christ and we're, we're convinced that the rest of the world doesn't have this truth and so we want to let them know the danger they're in. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to. But sadly, sometimes, as a new believer, we have a lot of zeal, and we may not do that in the love like we should, and instead we hit them with both barrels. Do you know you're on your way to hell right now? And if you don't repent, hey, you're going to burn, burn, burn forever in hell, where the worm never dies and the fires never quench, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you want to accept Jesus? Sometimes we forget that God so loved the world that he gave. All we remember is Revelation 14 and 11. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they'll have no relief day or night. I remember being a young believer and telling people that, that were lost that, that, that they're going to burn in hell if they don't repent. My mom wasn't saved at the time. I told her the tradition she was involved in was wrong. They didn't preach Christ and unless she accepted. She was going to burn in hell. It's not something you tell your mom, really, at least not that way, you know. But as I began to grow in my, in my relationship with the Lord, grow in grace and understand, she began to see my life change. Suddenly she began to see my relationship with God that I had and through certain circumstances that God orchestrated before my mother's death due to heart failure, she had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because it's all about God's love. And it's about giving man the opportunity to repent. And now I have this hope in my heart of seeing her again because she has passed through judgment because of her faith in Jesus Christ. She will spend eternity with the Lord. Here's my point. There is a place and time of being led by the Spirit and letting people know the dangers of rejecting Jesus Christ. People need to know the bad news. People need to know that there's a hell. But we must also remember Jesus called us to preach the good news, the gospel. That's what God called us to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But here in our text, we do come to the bad news. Those that have rejected Jesus Christ will be in torment forever and ever. Now, as I mentioned, I think we can go the other way when it comes to judgment at times. As we look at the judgment of God, we have that tendency to say, man, isn't that a little bit too much? I mean, Lord, did you really have to judge that way to drop 100-pound hailstones? I mean, wouldn't 30 pounds have been sufficient enough to do the job? Or maybe we go the other way. Lord, why 100-pounders? Why not 500-pounders and just, just get them? But to see again what this hallelujah shows us is that there is no such questioning in heaven. God's judgment are perfect. Everything about God is good. The goodness of God encompasses every aspect of the divine nature and every action God takes. See, when these four hallelujahs are mentioned, it's because in heaven we will see the full picture. And what seems to be so terrible and painful and unnecessary on earth will seem brilliant and perfect and righteous from the vantage point of heaven. Same thing is true 
in our life presently? Why doesn't the Lord show us the whole story now? Why do I have to go through this trial? What's going on in my life? Lord, I don't get this. I don't know why this is happening. This doesn't make sense. That's because the Lord is teaching you. The Lord is teaching me and forcing me to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Because He knows that He's developing that faith in me and you and it's absolutely necessary in light of what we're going to be doing in eternity. In heaven, it'll all be clear. In heaven, we'll say, Lord, now I know why you allowed this in my life. Now I know why I went through that. Thank you, Lord. So it will be glory. It will be hallelujah. You're judging justly. And not just hallelujah, the Lord, you judge perfectly, but hallelujah from this point forward. God, you're in charge. That brings us to verse 4 and the third hallelujah. Look at verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah." 24 elders, we've looked at this before, is best understood as representatives of the church. The four living creatures are a special order of angelic beings that we have seen throughout our studies in Revelation. But notice now how this Hallelujah or Hallelujah is a little bit different. This is more, your, uh, more than your typical Hallelujah. This is Amen, Hallelujah. That's also interesting to note that the word amen, like the word hallelujah, are the only words universally known. That is, they are understood in every language by every culture. When I listen to Pastor Wakas preach to the Pakistanis in the churches that we have going on over there, I, I can't understand a word he says, but every now and then I'll hear amen, hallelujah. Amen, hallelujah, I, I think. I don't know what you said, but amen, hallelujah. Now, the word amen, when said by God, and the word amen, when said by man, actually have a couple different definitions. When the amen is used used by God, it says, it is, and so shall it be. But when men say amen, it is, so let it be. So, God being the absolute authority is the only one that can say amen, it is, and so shall it be. God is the only one that can say tomorrow, or next week, or next year, such and such will happen. It will happen because He's God. In other words, if God declared it this way, it's going to go down that way. My reaction, my response, as a rational and reasonable believer should be, let it be. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. When God says amen in Scripture, we see it in the New Testament words of Jesus over and over again. See, when Jesus says, verily, verily, in the Gospel of Matthew and John or Luke, it's the same meaning for the word amen. And you see that in the Old King James Version. And the New King James, you know, it's the word most assuredly. So every time Jesus is saying, verily, verily, I say unto you, or, or most assuredly, I say to you, he's actually saying, amen, amen, I say to you. Same Greek words. Let me give you a few examples of this where Jesus uses these words. And then we'll close with our last hallelujah. I think one of the most important verses in all of Scripture is John 3.3. 3. Most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There Jesus is giving uh, us the criteria, the prerequisite for getting into heaven. He's wanting us to know this is how it's going to be. And because he's the only one who has the absolute authority to say these things, they will happen the, exactly the way he says it, it is. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's not the only place Jesus says those words. That was John 3.3. He says it again in John 3.5. But listen to John 5.24. Jesus speaking there says, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus is saying there, I'm telling you the truth. This is the bottom line. There is one door to heaven. I've got the key. I've got the entrance gate ticket, and I want you to know way ahead of time, you can only get there through me. Verily, verily, truly, truly, most assuredly, amen, amen, this is how it's going to happen. Now listen to John 6:47. It sounds similar. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He's not saying, I'll show you a way. Jesus wasn't saying that there are many ways. Jesus is saying, I am the only way. Now, why am I reminding us of this? Because it goes back to what we see going on in our world today. The world says there's many options, many paths to the God you choose. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. There's only one way. Verily, verily, most assuredly, amen, amen. Unless you are born again, you're on the wrong path. See, God is teaching us here that he's pulling away earth's existence, no longer giving earth an option uh, for our existence. There's coming a time, and I don't believe it's too far in the future, when God's going to say, that's it, I'm done, it's time to redo things. When you look at how things are on this earth right now, you realize we're we're not going to usher in paradise. Things are not going to get better and better. Instead, we need to be looking forward to heaven. And seeking to win others to faith in Jesus Christ before judgment comes. I mean, things are are getting out of control. Things have got to come to a climax. But God has got everything absolutely in control. Because God's going to come to a point where he's going to say, enough is enough, we're not going to do this anymore. He's not going to sit by and allow this, this rape to continue and murders to continue and crimes and broken hearts and trashed families and, and sin running rampant through the earth. Enough is enough, God will say. And Jesus Christ will return with power and authority and he'll rule and he'll reign forever and ever. That brings us to our final point, the final fourth hallelujah. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, picture in your mind the largest stadium in the world, filled to capacity, overflowing, then multiply that by ten thousands times ten thousands, then gather all of the world's musical instruments together with all of the heavenly instruments, the instruments, sounds, Voices, unimaginable purity, power, and magnificence. And suddenly, all on command, all at once, the thundering crowd in unison says, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I mean, I, I, even right now, there's chills going up and down my back. I mean, could you imagine being there, just, just the sound of that? It'll be glorious, amazing. As we close, right now, the thought of that may not be so glorious for you. In fact, it may be disappointing. That's why this teaching is so bittersweet. Because on one hand, I see me with the Lord coming back and He's ready to trample the rest of the world as if they're just grapes ready to be pressed in a wine press. But on the other hand, I realize that the grapes that we're trotting down upon are loved ones who never took the time to acknowledge Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. 
because it all comes back down to choice. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. If you're for Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and committed your life to him and eternity with Christ in heaven is what's awaiting you. But if you have not, what is awaiting you is, is hell. Now some say, well, bring it on. I'm just going to party with my friends in hell. Uh, no, you won't. <laughs> That's the bad news, okay? And it's bad news for a reason. Hell is a place where there is weeping, where there is gnashing of teeth, where the worm dies not, where the fire is never quenched. That does not sound like one big party to me. Listen, Satan will continue to wage war on all that God loves, and soon Jesus will return and judge all. And when he does, there will be no hiding from God. Like Adam and Eve, after they sinned in the garden, they could not hide from God. So too, there's no hiding from God when the end is near. This morning, if you've come here without a relationship with Jesus Christ, you still have the opportunity to get right with Jesus Christ. It's not too late. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know today if you were to die, you would go to heaven, I urgently, strongly implore you, encourage you to into that relationship with him. Listen, these things that we've read will happen. God has said they will. God will judge. And I would pray that you would be with every other believer in heaven as we say, Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace. Thank you for your word because it is a sure word. We know, Lord, it's, these things uh, are not a good chance they will happen, a possibility, but they will happen just as you said they will. And so we say amen, hallelujah, because you are the righteous judge. You are the one that's in control. Lord, you are the one that knows each man's hearts. And for us as your church, Lord, the bride of Christ, we ask that you would give us a special outpouring of your Holy Spirit into our life, that we could be bold witnesses in the times in which we're living in. Lord, we need your power. We need your strength like never before. Lord, I do pray that we would continue to go against unrighteousness and, 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 and stand up in places where we can stand up against unrighteousness, to get involved in politics, to get involved in, in, in a, <clears throat> uh, coming against things that are, that are unrighteous and unholy. But Lord, ultimately our job, our desire is to point people to your Son, Jesus Christ, that they would come into a personal relationship with, with you, to know God as their Savior and as their Lord, you. So, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to make that commitment, that you would touch their heart today, help them to see their need for you, and they would come to you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If that's your